1: Welcome to Going There, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Presented by the Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live, this series is made possible by the fine folks at Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. Today we are talking with singer-songwriter Julian Baker. Her music has been described as brutally honest, chilling, and achingly defiant. And she has a new album out called Little Oblivions that you can pre-order and will be available the week of February 26th. In our conversation, Julian talks about a very common experience where people struggle with comorbid depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. She explains her experience of depression and particularly how it feels like a giant hole that feels like it simply cannot be filled. And she also talks about her experience of having obsessive-compulsive disorder, which is generally defined by having obsessive, repetitive thoughts, and persistent compulsive behaviors. For Julian, her OCD manifests in perfectionism, in which she feels driven to achieve unusually high standards for herself, and she talks about the various methods that she uses to cope with her depression and her OCD. We appreciate Julian sharing her story on the Going There podcast, where our goal is to have in-depth and tough conversations to address important issues so we can learn from each other, challenge the stigma of mental illness, come out of the darkness, and get the care we need. So let's go there and listen to what Julian has to say. Julian, welcome to Going There.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: So let's just talk about the first time that you felt like, hey, there's there's something that's going on here that doesn't feel right to me.
0: It's funny because I feel like as a child, it's almost completely attached to music and the music I was listening to. Like and maybe that's because not necessarily that the first time i felt sadness like deep unexplainable sadness that wasn't to do with my dog dying or somebody making fun of me at school or something like something that i knew was an internal event those things come to me in the form of music memories
1: which songs do you remember kind of you know making you feel like oh this is helping me explore where i'm at
0: oh my gosh i loved like masochistically sad songs i remember i would just fiend for them of course of of everything i was listening to at that time let's see i was 12 or 13 so i was listening to panic at the disco's first record welcome to the black parade by my chemical romance getting really in my feelings to those tunes and then it's, it's just so funny the way that such genuine, huge emotions would come to me by way of something really <laughs> commercial and sort of comedic. Like, I remember hearing that Gary Jules piano cover of Mad World. It was just on like a Gears of War video game commercial. And I heard, like heard it on my friend's TV and I was like, I have to f- figure out what song that was. And that's how I found out about so much music because it was like, you know, I was an only child. I had people in my neighborhood that we all listened to the same things, the bands that you could find on the Hot Topic t-shirt wall. And that was basically how I got informed of music that wasn't my parents' music. It's like a bizarre feeling to look at them now. And more often than not, when I'm talking about the Black Parade, I'm making fun of the clothes that I wore or the attitude that I had and sort of minimizing the legitimate honest overwhelming feelings that i was sort of channeling through these intentionally theatrically sad songs
1: for people who have experienced depression or people who have family members who've experienced depression they know that difference you know they know when there's something that is very connected to what's happening around you and then there's something that even if it starts with something in the world it goes to a very different place Um, and I'm kind of curious for you like like what what did you notice in terms of just what you were experiencing that was different from what others might consider kind of more quote-unquote routine sadness
0: I remember like having a conversation with my dad when I was really young and my dad has always been more open than really any other person's parents or like any other person that I knew about as an adult about mental illness and mental health and I remember just like asking him what it feels like I didn't understand like what depression was I was like maybe 10 and he was like I was just sitting across from him on the couch and he was like it's like trying to fill in a giant hole and you're just like standing there with your shovel with dirt and you keep filling in the hole and the hole is still there and the more you put into the hole, you feel like it should be getting smaller and it's just getting bigger and I didn't understand it for me at you know 10 or 11 it was so tactile and literal and something I couldn't put into uh like an emotional context and then when I felt that I think the unexplainable is what stuck out to me most. I was like, why? There's really no reason in my life for me to feel like this. And yet my thoughts are becoming more and more like toxic to me, you know? And I think, you know, it's like there's a certain amount of clarity and diagnosis. And so what I struggle with is different than like what my other people in my family with depression struggle with because I have OCD. And so like my thoughts... Are obsessive and repetitive and it just became more and more difficult for me to get outside of my head
1: yeah you know one of the things that you were talking about is you know what your dad was saying with that hole and i think that something that's just very tough for people to to kind of understand is that when 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 you're depressed or you're anxious and and people are trying to help in, so, and, and don't get me wrong, like sometimes it does, you know, they're they're that's part of the dance of, of getting to know yourself and getting to know other people. Sure. But a lot of times what happens is that every time something occurs that in theory should help, it's like this is just more evidence that it's worse than I thought. Oh. Like it's, get, it's like this is this is so like I, I'm getting farther from you by you doing these things and it's like oh my god that like to me it almost is like a quicksand like there's just there's nothing to grab onto
0: exactly and i think it's got so much to do like you know when you talk about understanding trauma in your body and like generational trauma and like how that changes the neurochemistry of like challenges your grandparents had what challenges then that imposed on your parents and what your parents are trying to give to you like when i see my dad explaining that, I can connect it so easily. And you know, what you're talking about is so true. Um, That the more that people try to help, the more it just seems like it is an acknowledgement of the thing that is making you different and making you isolated and othered. Um, and as much as people are trying to maybe validate that out loud or accommodate that to to the person who's experiencing it, it is like this reconfirmation of your otherness and of your failure to like assimilate normally into society or be how I don't want to say how normal people are, how you project people around you must feel. And I, I mean, I think about that so much because that's true in my own life and still is really difficult. Like, I shut down so much when I get anxious because anybody trying to show me like patience or deference, I feel indebted to them because I'm like, you shouldn't have to, things shouldn't have to be different for me. And I honestly think, you know, that's something that comes from, at least I feel like in my experience and in in my family, there's a deep connection there to, like, bootstrap mentality and being able to do the work on yourself independently without making yourself a burden to others. And, you know, there's so much else there, too, with the way that women are taught to be accommodating and not to, like, be demanding or socialized to have less needs and be more caretakers than uh, have themselves taken care of or whatever. But, yeah, I, I find myself especially within these last couple of years like I would just become furious and retreat from people because I was so frustrated with myself at not being able to put in the work and fix my brain once and for all.
1: It's so interesting because we have these things in society where we've given permission for tolerating distress as a badge of honor.
0: Like I do long distance running. I hate saying that because uh in my experience like no one wants to hear you talk about how much you love running. But I love running. <laughs> so like Wait, why do,
1: why do people say that?
0: I don't know it's just like the jock who's like, Yeah, you just gotta get out there and hit those trails, bro. I love running, I did 13 miles today. Like, I never like talking about it that much, and so I feel weird being like, I am capable of running long distances, but I do like half marathons and stuff. And it's interesting because I started running, like, I would have a panic attack and I would just run, I would just leave the venue, or I would, God, I remember there was this one time. I had just played a show in new york and i feel like it was at mercury lounge and i was just sprinting up and down the stairs because it was cold and it was in new york and i didn't want to walk through the bar and so i'm just doing these like suicide squats on the stairs <laughs> physically exercising and trying to like do anything to push out that feeling because i was unable to sit with it you know i had absolutely no tolerance for anxiety and i think it made me be a very hyperactive high-strung person and like what you're saying with technically all like marathon runners should be having a panic attack because they're putting their body through this extreme stress and everybody's screaming at them and there's so many stimuli going on and there's so much at stake and it makes me think you know a lot of times especially i feel like when you're in a race there is like Mm -hmm. an adrenaline or like Excitement response that's similar to your fight or flight response, where you're like, There is only one option here, and so I'm gonna let my emergency brain, like my trauma brain, take over and get me through this. Part of it is just being at the 25th mile of your panic attack and pushing through, but also it's like, Why are we all walking around pushing through our panic attacks instead of evaluating the? societal factors and factors about our work and about our our daily lives that are giving us these panic attacks
1: that's the thing because one of the biggest problems I have with a lot of the people with whom I work is that they're doing so many good things you know they're doing so many good things in their life i mean think about think about you i mean you're you know you're at the beginning essentially of this fantastic career i mean like if you weren't doing that things would be less stressful for you and you know if you start adding things on not you but anybody starts adding things on the it it gets back to that central premise it's like well you're supposed to feel good that you're a musician doesn't that make you feel good Doesn't that make you not be OCD anymore? Right. You know, it's like
0: conversation with people from my hometown, like, good job. And I'm just like, "Ah." (laughs) I mean, not so much anymore. But like,
1: I think one of the things that was is so much better about the way things used to be. Right. Because it used to be that everything was this like rigid, heteronormative, racist, sexist, like every every all the all the isms were all lined Mm up, you know, and so that there was this very narrow group of people that got to have any kind of sense of belonging or non otherness. The thing that's so amazing now is that everything is opening up. But the thing that you know we have to get to the other side of is that there's still this part of of everyone that still evaluates success based on those old mm-hmm. norms i mean people know that this isn't true but there's something in the back of your head that's like well you're supposed to settle down and have a family and you're supposed to have one job for the rest of your life and it's supposed to always move up and you know and you're yeah. supposed to stay connected with people in the same way and and the 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 thing that nobody talks about is how difficult it is to do all of these things. I feel like that's the, what you're talking about with the societal issue, is that why don't people talk about how difficult it is to hold down a regular job, to have oh relationships?
0: God. Yeah, you're describing like so many things about how we evaluate ourselves as successful. I don't know, in the, in the therapy that I have undergone, it's very like values-based. And that was hard for me to figure out because Basically, I didn't know what my values were or how they were different from things that I had let be established as mat- like matters, of course. My anxiety does manifest itself in productivity a lot. Uh, and I think for a lot of people that's true because we have a, sort of an atmosphere of grind culture that ties in, it's almost this um, malformed, like, cousin of thought to bootstrap mentality of if you just work hard good things will come to you if you just are dedicated enough if you're just a good enough musician if you're just if you just stay up all night practicing your instrument like the movie whiplash then you will be rewarded by the music gods uh, for your dedication and I don't want to speak, you know, I'm an amateur and this is your job. So pardon, correct me, but, uh, no,
1: no, no, I, 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 I (laughs) reject, I reject that, that dichotomy. Absolutely. No. And this is what you and I were talking about right at the beginning. It's like, we are completely lose this, this expert concept and anyone who's in our field should know by definition that we don't know very much. Like that should be the thing that you learn and that like, you should be learning from the people who you're working with it's like we we should be spending more time listening to them because it's like i don't i don't feel like we have this thing on 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 lock because if we did there wouldn't be a mental health crisis
0: oh my gosh people were doing absolutely inhumane things as standard practice like 20 years ago that were experts so i'm i'm all for like leveling academia and, and being aware of like yeah we
1: we, we like accreditation
0: we, we, and epistemic privilege yeah
1: yeah i mean we we came up with gay conversion therapy let's let's have a little humility oh you oh know?
0: my god so hold on let me just get my thoughts in order because there's so many things that i have to say about that the first thing i was going to say is that we when you said we need to be learning from the people that we're working with yes that is amazing to me because it is, it's is—it's a really simple explanation of how I think identity politics and, like, trying to make a protocol built off of identity politics is still just, like, a different way of categorization. And so even when you think about, like, trying to explore gender theory and, you know, more people becoming awake to the fact that gender isn't binary— But then it's still like, so the thing we learn from this, from dismantling that binary is that you interact with people on a completely individual basis that has maybe some, but not necessarily any bearing on the way another person understands their gender and their sexuality and their identity. And that's like the liberty that you afford to the human beings in your life. But it's the same way I think with mental illness Or with mental health I was gonna say like you talk about gay conversion therapy and my particular (laughs) flavor of OCD is uh, obsessed with I don't know how to say it uh, like correctness with rightness you know ultimately if you if you want to get down to the the brass tacks of it it's like any other obsession it's seeking uh, security in finding some mechanism to alleviate uncertainty uh because uncertainty is uh uncomfortable for all humans you know we don't want to not know where our next meal is going to come from and we don't want to not know what everybody else is wearing to the party and we don't want to not know if earth is going to die from pollution you know it's whatever but so much of that is wrapped up in i think my faith and even though it's like you know (laughs) <laughs> I've done so much reflecting this year like everybody has uh, but you know really reevaluating you know coming back again to these societal aspects and things that we take to be the way it is all capital letters like the way that the human experience is, is evaluated it's bizarre to be in a position where for so long I made a point to actively reconcile queerness and faith without fully acknowledging the negative impacts that organized religion had maybe had on my life. <laughs> Gosh, I mean, Love and Action was in Memphis, you know, the infamous conversion therapy center. And it's like, those are things that were in my consciousness and in my awareness that I didn't really process as personal to me. You know, because I wasn't connecting with them on an, like, identity basis, I guess. And I've talked about this before. It's like, you know, I just came out and then I had all these friends that were men and they were just like, well, we you're a boy now. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, well, I mean, not really, but like they're like I, I there's not really a ton. There wasn't really a ton of. Three oh. or yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's just like now <laughs> you are this and also it's yeah. you know i got wrapped up a lot in ideas of who like righteousness and social activism and you know i think that you're taught in so many ways when you grow up in church that you're supposed to be in control of your mind and of your every action and of your every will and that's not always possible you like if you have intrusive thoughts there. They're uncontrollable thoughts that uh, occur in your mind, and there's this big rift between understanding the mind and its actual neurological, psychological capabilities, and then the expectations we have set up by religious institutions or academic institutions or you know our jobs or what have you
1: you know when people say like well what's what's wrong with having gay conversion therapy as an option and it's like well it's not really that it's like why aren't we asking the question of like why is there a need for that to begin with you know like why on a societal level is it's a living breathing At least from my perspective of what I've seen, harmful monument to the exact opposite of what we should be doing. I live in in Maplewood in New New Jersey, and it's you know we have a big rainbow in the center of our town, and I'm very I'm very fortunate because I see how my kids they have gay friends, they have bi friends, they have trans friends already, and I see the the ease with which they talk about you know they they just talk about it sort of like, well 11 and 14.
0: That's amazing.
1: And yeah, it is. And it's like and they just talk about the way someone's like, oh, so and so's Italian. Like so and so is trans, you know, and they and they have the language where it was, you know, born male but identifies as female and is living as such and
0: that makes me so happy. Like when I see my younger cousins navigating that because, you know, I mean I'm I don't know. There's several ways in which my anxiety mm-hmm. expresses itself and the and the rightness uh comes across, but choosing the correct words and the correct terminology for some reason just like became very important to me and there's so much about how language shapes our perception of others you know so it's like having that built into how those children interact with each other i think is already going to have like a positive impact on how they understand themselves and like their self-concept
1: it's such a simple and straightforward concept that otherness idea, Mm. right? It's like, well, there's the quote, unquote, norm. And then there's other and once you have to be defined as other everything then has to go through that filter. You know, it's sort of like you're hanging out with a bunch of people and and someone was like, Well, how come you never told me you were gay? It's like, Well, the fact that I need to declare that as much as that may seem like an innocuous thing to you. That's a that's a big deal to me. Because what it's saying is that I now have to think of myself in your context in your framework, that's a that's a whole different ballgame of of orienting to one's life. And if you do that across multiple things, if you talk about that in terms of of race, in terms of gender, in terms of sexuality and all these religion and all the anxieties that get built up instead of just being able to go and hang out with your friends, it's like, oh, well, my other friends wanted me to say it. Do Do I have to say it? Do I have to? It's like and that may not seem like a big deal to people, but it is if it's happening all the time across a lifetime and that's how these like anxieties build up and those stresses build up
0: yeah yeah i think there's there is a lot of social performing so much and it's it really doesn't matter if you like for me I find that there was a lot of social performance that, whether I wanted to admit it or not, was, you know, centered around doing the correct thing or the most just thing or the rightest thing. And again, with like with uh, obsessiveness or perfectionism, that's not to say when you're a perfectionist, you do everything perfectly. It's that when you're a perfectionist, you are hypersensitive to when you fail. Which, you know, if you have an obsession that ultimately doesn't feed or halt your compulsion it just makes it worse then you're like okay well then the failure is getting greater i think about sometimes the tears of realness that we get in discussing mental health Mm -hmm. like memes with a butterfly that say like it's okay to be different (laughs) like there's that level um all the way down to super bleak stuff what i worry about with even right now i'm feeling conflicted because i don't I don't want to like divulge too much of my own personal experience and thus like romanticize it or use it as some sort of posturing for like how I want myself to be understood through the world or some kind of like guilt attraction or trauma porn, whatever. But when we don't speak as literally and candidly about these things as we should, we risk euphemizing like euphemizing that's not a word making a euphemism and should be a word it should be a word yeah like i mean you think about it with anything like
1: i declare euphemizing a word on this podcast (laughs) euphemizing
0: yes um yeah we you know we create these handy euphemisms to distance ourselves from realities of things that are really painful that and then we keep them taboo and while keeping them taboo like we continue to perpetuate their otherness so you could say that you know it's i grew up in a southern family and i feel like there's a lot of navigating around people's dark realities with euphemisms and like not speaking about things or having unspoken understandings about the wellness or the the private personal life of your family members and that's not helpful because it continues to like reinforce the idea that there is like a secret self that is inappropriate for the world to see
1: and i I worry about that same thing even with you know doing you know having public conversations about it because it's almost like you're allowed to have a couple of drinks but you can't be like blacked out drunk you're not allowed to do that you know you're allowed to hey it's it's like you know we all experience sadness you're allowed to do that but you're not allowed to be like horribly can't get out of bed depressed you know yeah,
0: no, and I, I think that ties in so much with and honestly um you know when i i made fun of myself for saying i've been reflecting a lot because everyone's been reflecting in quarantine but this record is about to come out and a lot has happened um while we've been making it and it's interesting to think about the narrative of the last couple records and how that's almost what i was trying to do even though i had this like understanding that recovery is a is a nonlinear journey and like there's probably you know never going to be this moment where i feel like i'm healthy now i'm stable now it's it's essentially it's a disappearing horizon but I tried so much to personify my anxiety as something I did not want to, as something that I wanted to overcome and have this, like, triumphant narrative about in, in something that I didn't want to investigate or allow to be part of of me, just of my personality, you know? Yeah, you think about something never going away. And with all the ways that we talk about mental illness, it's like really something more akin to chronic pain than it is, because I hear people say all the time, we should have more mental health like faculties available to people because people don't realize it's an illness. And if you broke your arm, you wouldn't be like, hey, just suck it up and get better. But when you break your arm, you just put your arm in a cast, and then if your doctor is doing right by you, hopefully the bone just grows back kind of the same way, or you have to have massive reconstructive surgery if it's really bad. But what I'm saying is like, then your arm goes back to being the same way. And it's more like somebody just telling you that your knee is going to pop out of place unexpectedly forever for the rest of your life. And you're gonna have to learn. You can walk, and you can go, and do all the stuff that you want to do. But just be aware. And if it pops out of, like, if you dislocate your joint, or if you have something else happen to you, like this, is how you deal with it. And it's not like there's not a cure. But I think I was waiting for something like that. And especially, oh, geez, I read tomes and tomes of philosophy and psychology and fiction and nonfiction and tried meditative practices and all these things to try to like enlighten myself out of anxiety (laughs) and uh yeah all that stuff is inevitably like self-defeating because then when you find yourself dealing with a new whack-a-mole that you haven't gotten to yet then it's like disappointing for all the work that you've done
1: bias and discrimination is simple in its concept but it's incredibly complicated in how it manifests Yeah. You know, like thinking one group of people is better than another is a very simple thing, but it's incredibly complicated in terms of how it infiltrates someone's life. And treatment is sort of sometimes can be very simple, but is incredibly in in concept. It's like you have to tolerate the emotion until you get some kind of like a reset, you know, with anxiety. But it's incredibly complicated because that reset doesn't always happen and Mm -hmm. it doesn't happen in a linear way. And then it's like, you know, what's simple? Drugs are simple. Alcohol <laughs> is simple. Bad food yeah. is simple. And and then when people, people sort of, you know, say, well, why, you know, that's not going to solve the problem. It's like, it's like, yeah, but, but you don't, you don't know what the problem is. Like you think yeah. the problem is, oh, I had a breakup and you know, now I'm sad. It's like, mm-hmm. that's not the point. The point is like I was going to be sad at some point. This just happens to be the I thing that triggered it. And sometimes when you everything is so complicated. It's just like, you know, I just need like a, a minute where things are simple, where I'm high, where I'm drunk, where I'm like, you know, jacked up on, on, on nicotine and caffeine, or like a lot of a lot of kids, you know, these days, I'm just like, I'm jacked up on Adderall, and then I'm smoking pot, you know, to, to go to sleep. And it's so easy to get into that cycle, when you have those other complexities, because it is so appealing to have something that feels simple.
0: Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I completely agree with you. And I think that's what was so difficult for me. And you know, like, this is still painful to talk about to my ego. But since the podcast is called going there. Yeah, you know, I was sober for many years. And that kind of became part of my identity. And then I feel like I have always been a hardcore fan. And I sort, I like collapsed sobriety and straight edge culture. And you know, it's like, I'm not out here in FSU. I just listened to a lot of <laughs> straight edge music. Like I'm, I'm not claiming to be like part of the culture, but I could go off on a tangent about how there is an element of purity culture to it that sort of collaborated well or conflated well with the purity culture of Christianity that you know of being excellent and being morally right and being superior and denying the flesh mm-hmm. or whatever there was a point it was in the last few days of 2018 in December like December 27th 28th and something just went off in my brain that was like I have been feeling the hypervigilant cold sweat panic state for three straight days and I don't know why I'm straight edge anymore. Then I was just like, you know what? Maybe it's time to change my relationship to alcohol. And of course I did that maybe subconsciously because I was like, well, nothing nothing is working. Like none of my tactics are working. Prayer is not working. <laughs> Surprise. That was mean, I'm sorry. Sometimes prayer and meditation, I, I pray differently now, you know, I don't, <laughs> I guess like now I'm not just praying for God to magically make my anxiety to go away.
1: It's kind of like what we've been saying in the sense that when something's presented to you in a, well, if you just do this, it'll be okay way for different people. Prayer can feel like different things. And I do yeah. think for some people, if you feel like it was sold to you as you're anxious, cause you're not doing this. And yeah. if you just do this, you'll be fine. I, I think it's fair to develop a certain, you know, Hey, that 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 didn't work for me, and it made me feel yeah. bad in the in the in the in the process.
0: Sure, no, and I mean I can sit here and talk about bad theology, and I mean that what well, it's still a thing I enjoy talking about, but now I just think I try to root it more in the body and the interpersonal and you know not over philosophize things that i mean i'm saying like you know maybe that was bad theology that it was sold to me that i could pray my anxiety away or read my anxiety away or educate my anxiety away but what i'm saying is like you know in in that moment these things aren't working and so i was just like yeah i would like to not feel this way for even one moment then i had like a, a identity crisis about not being straight edge anymore and like among all those things you know i thought What you're saying is like people think, oh, the problem is uh, you're going through a breakup, you're sad, so you're just going to drown it in booze. But the thing is really like people are searching for relief, I think, a lot of times and then start to become dependent on the one kind of relief that they can easily access Mm -hmm. and then like i'm sure i've read a ton of books about this too because i'm like on an eternal quest to understand everything which i never will but then you know it's like the more you use the less you are able to feel at like emotional or Mm -hmm. mental stasis without a substance and Mm -hmm. so then your tolerance for life without the substance actually goes further down gradually um as your tolerance or your imperviousness to the substance goes up And um, that was a really difficult thing to come back from for me, just getting into that cycle, having my sobriety wrapped up in an ideology of superiority and, uh, like, triumph over, like, using the will to subvert the impulse. Like, that, I was like, oh, I actually can't do this because trauma is powerful and the chemicals in my brain are powerful and addiction is powerful. And it was humbling, but it was also, like, exactly what you're describing you know it's like people fall into those cycles for a reason
1: one of the things that i'll say to the people i'm working with is that it's it's good to have a more like you're like your therapist talking about to have values like it's it's good if the values are kind of subservient to a more organic you like if you're using them as a way of trying to figure your life out that's works but if, if it's now become another sexism another racism another way for you to feel like your other and you're not meeting whatever arbitrary standard it's like well what do you what do you what do you have then now you now you now that's because like to me that's the that's one of the ways that discrimination manifests is when the person is now the internalizes you know this sense that that they're they're not good enough and and they've got to be in this perpetual fight to to get better and it's like oh man that's it's it's like it's not a conversation it's it's not even an argument it's it's just it's yeah. just like a, it's a beat down it's like an emotional yeah. beat down and it is. Yeah. you know
0: that's coming from like yourself all the time and i think yeah. that's what's that's what's so difficult is because oh man like i wanted for so long i wanted to get better and it wasn't happening and i was so angry because i just wanted to not be, like, burdensome to my friends, and it was because, like, the whole time I was trying to get better still was rooted in this, like, if I just go to this behavioral health clinic, if I just do this thing, if I just, like, trust my psycho my psychiatrist about what medication I should be on, then maybe I can, like, everything go back to normal, and I can, uh, you know, and I don't think that's a realistic standard you know when you're just worried about like making the people in your life stop worrying about you because that's uncomfortable I, you know and i think unfortunately that's still how a lot of people look at mental health is like i'm just trying to get where other people don't think that i'm crazy right now <laughs> <laughs> like that's how i felt i was like man i've been anxious for my whole life It's manifesting in a really negative way right now. If I could just have it go back to manifesting in a really tolerable way, I could probably be the same level of miserable, but my friends wouldn't not know if I'm going to live or die. And then (laughs) you're just like, yeah, that seems optimal, but you know, it's a really low bar.
1: Well. We are unfortunately out of time. And it's a oh, bummer no. because I feel like we could have like eight more discussions off of what we talked about. Oh but God, yes. um, but um honestly, you know, like one of the things as you were talking, what was interesting is that I was trying to figure out like because I don't I don't really judge that much when I listen to music, like what draws me in. I'm just kind of like. I like what I like and I don't like it's kind of like, you know, Beavis and Butthead had it kind of right on that front. Like you just think some things are cool and some things suck. So it's like, yeah, you know, Either like you
0: rock or you suck.
1: Yeah. And, and it's just but I think in, in retrospect, one of the things that I liked about the music and I think I, I get that vibe from talking with you is that it does feel like for some reason the music kind of just opens up the conversation I I don't get the feeling you can tell me if I'm wrong about this that it at least the things that I've heard that it's as much like here's the conclusion you're supposed to be coming to it's more like here's the emotion and what do you think I I don't know that that's the that's the vibe that I get off of it uh, talking with you
0: that's the biggest compliment I love that I think, yeah, it's really counter to my personality to want to come with one foregone conclusion about anything, you know, as ironic as that is because I'm always just trying to figure out one nice little box of how I feel about everything, but that's that's a big compliment. Thank you. I hope that that's what the music does. I hope it's a, a catalyst for discourse and not just my sermon on what I think. In a song.
1: Well, listen, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, you know, best of luck to you with everything.
0: Of course. Yeah, thank you so much.
1: So there it is, Julian Baker talking about her struggle with depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder. There are so many important takeaways from Julian's story, particularly a recognition of how difficult and complicated it is to struggle with more than one mental health issue. And Julian does such a fantastic job of talking about the trial and error that many people go through to figure out how to cope. Will substance use work? Will therapy? Will exercise? And for each of us, there may be a different combination of coping methods that helps us manage our unique mental health issues. And I just want to highlight one thing in particular that we brought up towards the end of the conversation, which was the role of music in Julian's journey to experience, process, and express her intense emotions. I was really struck by the fact that Julian's listening to bands like My Chemical Romance and Panic at the Disco allowed her to, as she said, get really into her feelings. For many of us, music is our first entrance into understanding how we feel about ourselves, our lives, and the world around us, and realizing that there may be others out there who feel the same way. And this is so important towards reducing the stigma that people have towards mental illness. Sometimes it can mean so much to know that there's just one person out there who understands and can help us articulate our feelings. And you can feel the empathy in Julian's music, where she is opening conversations, exploring emotions, and not feeling like she has to provide all the answers. The wisdom she has from her own mental health journey comes through, and it translates into a respect for others, recognizing that coping with mental illness is often a journey and not a destination. I want to thank Consequence Podcast Network and Sound Mind Live for including me in this wonderful project, which is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. And thanks to Pete Wilson and the Rooks for letting us use their song, I Know. If you are struggling with anxiety, depression, or addiction and are looking for help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-622-4357. And if you're thinking about harming yourself and want to seek help, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You may also go to the Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound websites for more information. So be healthy, be safe, and be kind to yourself and others. See you next time at the Crossroads.